Lords, ladies, and lowlifes, I'd like to welcome you to the second season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. When my brewery was facing extinction for the third of five times, I poured my heart into a book by the same name and released it on Amazon and Kobo in August of 2021. That was my sordid tale about the mistakes I made and the punches I took over a 10-year career in craft beer. It was tough to write, but it was a story that needed to be shared and it contained lessons I wanted to make sure others could learn from. I truly hope you grab a copy and reach out and let me know your thoughts. In this podcast, I wanted to share the stories of struggle, strife, and sacrifice that other owners and operators have experienced. Some of the content is emotional, and some of it is inspirational. And I'm confident that if you listen closely, you'll find all of it to be educational. I want to take the time to honestly thank you for being here, and thanks for listening, subscribing, sharing, and liking the podcast. With your help and the help of our guests, I truly hope that we can teach the world how not to start a damn brewery. Your best friend Harry has a brother Larry. In five days from now, he's going to marry. He's hoping you can make it there if you can, because in the ceremony, you'll be the best man. While the lyrics of that 1989 Young MC Jam have absolutely nothing to do with this episode, since they've been banging around in my head ever since I've been editing it, I had to share it with you, so they'll now be banging around in yours. You're welcome. So our guest today is none other than the ubiquitous Harry Schumacher, the founder, writer, editor, podcaster, and all-around badass at Beer Business Daily. His is a publication that's been reporting about beer and the business of beer long before most of us even knew that it was possible to make beer that wasn't fizzy yellow piss water in a can. He's seen kings made, empires fall, and his insight into what makes the incumbent leaders in the beer business tick. He knows these CEOs personally and has reported on their successes as much as their failures. And that is why I wanted to have him on the show. He shares a perspective that most of us didn't even know that we didn't know. Since we only talk to other craft beer guys, we tend to miss some of the macro business metrics that drive the broader beer market, but Harry was generous enough to share his insights with all of us. So buckle in, knuckle up, because Harry is about to take us on a big beer ride. So Harry, I want to thank you for talking, thanks for sharing, and thanks most of all for giving a bacon-wrapped fuck with a side of roasted potatoes about helping all my guests be better in their careers today. You have a unique perspective, and, and most people I interviewed, so far at least, and probably primarily what the goal of the show is going to be is those smaller craft brew guys, the you know under a thousand barrels, best case scenario, one two thousand, maybe twenty five hundred. And so, I think what you can bring to the table is a perspective on the, the larger industry overall and kind of what the the bigger craft guys are doing. But then also, you know, you've seen the industry evolve, you've seen it grow from the beginning. And so, for sure, you have the longest timeline. I'm just not saying you're old. You have the longest <laughs> timeline of anyone that I've interviewed thus far, as far as oh, a career of beer. Thank you. So I appreciate you taking the time you today. Bet. You bet. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. Uh, I love your dogs. They seem supremely uninterested in your podcast. <laughs> They're not interested in much until my son gets home, and then they will jump up and run around like crazy. But yeah, until that time, they're they're pretty chill. Yeah. Uh, I've already forgotten the question. I promise I'm not high. What was the question? Again? Oh, I hadn't gotten one yet. So basically, oh. the what I was getting to is that so the point being that you have a ton of experience that some of our guys that, and us and our my friends aren't going to have. But before we get into what you know about the industry and what you can share with us, I kind of want to hear about how uh, Beer Business Daily got started, but specifically how you got started in the industry and, and when and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. I, I kind of uh, know your story, but uh, nobody else does. So, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Um, uh, so, I when I got out of college, my dad was a Lone Star Shiver in Houston, but it was not a profitable enterprise at that point. Really? You know, you can still you can sell, you know, 8 million cases in a market and lose money. 
And that's, I think a lot of people forget that it's really, it's not how much beer you sell, it's how much beer you sell per account. Right. And so getting back to your question, I he's like, oh, great news. I sold the company. But I was like, well, shit, I'm fucked. I thought I had a job. You know, <laughs> so I was like, well, I guess. So I, I went to work at another distributorship, his competitor uh, in Houston. And I worked there for like eight years and worked my way through, started as a driver, merchandiser, and went up through the sales department and ended up as a, a sales, kind of a sales slash data management position. I was running Telcel and stuff like that. Decided I wanted to go back to school. So I went to back to school, but I had two little kids. Started running out of money. <laughs> the kids? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and the wife. And so, yeah. So I, I was like, it's right when email, it's like 98. Email was starting to catch on. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, the beer industry is what, five, 10 years behind everybody. So Email was not even really catching on at that point, just barely. And I thought... Yeah, like an AOL account instead of another... They, they were all AOL accounts, <laughs> all of them. And, it, it, you know, and, and so I thought a daily. It, like everybody, that seems like not revolutionary at all, right? To I, come up with something new every day? It, it, I, that, well, that terrifies me. I, that's one of the things I think is most interesting about it. That if well, I had started it, I would have started the beer business monthly and then grown to daily maybe, but I wouldn't have gone straight to daily. Well, that's funny. That's exactly what my dad said when I told him. He goes, you should call it beer business every other day. Like, <laughs> this is not... But, you know, now everything's daily. But at yeah. the time, it was very unheard of. And it was unheard of to have a website with a paywall. Really, the only entity I knew that was doing it was the Wall Street Journal at the time. And if, so, mm. I, when I built the website, it looked exactly like the Wall Street Journal. Like, I'm surprised I didn't get sued. Like, the font was the same. Yeah. And, you know, at the time. And so, I, I, I just, I really kind of thought of it and launched it in the same day. It was fax and email. And, you know, I had like five subscribers the first day and I was psyched. You know, they were all Texas wholesalers that I knew. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, five, if I get five a day, oh, man, I'm going to be rich. But yeah, and then I didn't get any for the, a month. And you know, it's hard it's to start when you're writing daily for five people. But what did and you start by doing? Just literally Just literally just scouring. Yeah. I, I had a list, uh, had the wholesale beer distributors of Texas list. I started there. Then I got the national beer wholesalers. They had uh, fax numbers in there. So I would spam, mm. spam fax everybody and send uh, samples. Yeah. That's really how, really the first four years, that was my marketing. And Which makes know. sense. So one of the reasons I think it's interesting is that I, when I decided, and we'll of course get to this, I'm sure, some other time, but that was going to go national and like reach out to other distributors. I can't get these fuckers to call me back and get them on the phone. So, I was amazed yes. that you're able to get, to build a list of people that are interested, of people who notoriously don't come to the telephone. So. No, well, it, it honestly, it was facts. And the way I did it was I made it look like a newsletter. This goes to Frank Sourbeer. So, the secretary <laughs> goes, oh, this is a fax for my boss and hands it to him. Oh, nice. See? Yeah. Little, there was always a little trick chicanery going on. Just um, the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. At the time, it's probably, it probably still is, it's illegal to fax somebody without their permission because you're wasting their resources. That Can Spam Act covered that too, I think, yeah. Can Spam Act, right. And do you think I gave a fuck? No. And I did. I got people calling me. I could sue you. I was like, go ahead, pal. I'm sorry I wasted one sheet of paper. Yeah, but, um, I'll just give you the eight bucks you're going to get anyways if you want. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we, we used mail too, direct mail. And then the whole anthrax thing hit. And that was that was tough. But anyway, that's, that's how it got started. And it was kind of just a whim. First years were very tough. Just me alone doing it, uh, not making a lot of money. 
almost gave it up a few times. And then it hit mm-hmm. in 2005. So do you kind of know what you were asking for or would you just call Pete Coors and be like, hey, what's new and interesting? But you don't know how to... What, what, no, what happened was is that Miller was bought by uh, South African breweries. And the guy that came over was South African named Norman Adamy. And when he got here, he was looking at the, you know, they're basically just two trade publications. And he said, well, why don't we get this guy any love? Because everybody talks to this guy. And, and so he engaged with that. It was a game changer. Yeah, it opens doors and then. Right. And then, yeah, you know, and then August Bush is like, well, why, don't, why aren't we talking to him if, if Adamy's talking to him? You know, and everybody gets jealous and then it creates a perfect little storm. It was wonderful. Could have gone the other way. Is, you know, very lucky. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so overall, kind of what's your clientele? Who reads it? You started obviously with the wholesalers here in Texas and of course it grew. So yeah, it's, it started off as a, just a distributor newsletter. And, you know, to, to this day I write, we write as if we're writing to a distributor. Okay. So that's our, that's who we think of as our audience. But now it's, it's about 50% wholesalers, and 50% brewers and, or, you know, and then there's lawyers and accountants and add people. It's a third, a third, a third, a third. Exactly. <laughs> it's four right. thirds. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow it ends up in a, a living. As, as you're talking today and you're going to give us all this amazing insight and people are like, holy shit, whatever that guy's got to say, I want to read. How do some, how does somebody to go to sign up for it? Yeah. You, you have to be invited to jump in and they will gang fight. Yeah. There's all, there's used to be all these subscription tropes that, you know, Make it so you limit it to 200 people. Make, right. you know, the, uh, when I was first getting started, like all these tricks. But Oh, it, beernet.com. Okay. B-W-E-R-N-E-T dot com. That should be easy to remember. If they can't, yes. they don't deserve to be a exactly. subscriber anyways, I guess. At that That's point. right. That's right. Through that process, what do you think is one of the biggest challenges that you overcame in building the, the business overall outside of Anthrax? Yeah. <laughs> well, at first, it was getting people to accept to pay for a publication that was online. Well, that's more common now, at the time, that was anathema. So, at the time, it was Beer Marketers Insights. It was an orange, you know, paper that was mailed, was my competitor. You get something in the mail, if you hold it. Yeah. You're paying for something that you hold. Feels like a magazine. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, it feels like a magazine. You know, we laugh at that now, but at the time, that was, that was a hurdle. And then getting people off fax. So, it was a fax and an email newsletter. Fax was a real pain in the ass to send every day, even though it was... It was it first through WinFax, so mm-hmm. it would actually dial every number and send it. You could save it essentially as a file, and then... send it a file, <laughs> and it would it would go. It would take you know four hours to dial every. I couldn't travel. I couldn't. Yeah. You know, if I went to my my in laws' house, I'm like, sorry, there's gonna be a long distance bill on your. Thing. You know, finally, I then they came out with internet faxing, so that made it easier. But it was still ten cents a page. I Quickly. wasn't making a lot of money on. So finally, getting it was half and half, half fax and. Pushing people to email, pushing people to email. I know I'm boring the tears out of anybody under 50 right now, but um, yeah, and, and it took a while. And finally, I just said, hey, there's 100 people left on fax. And I said, guys, you're out. You're gotta, you got to switch to email. And you knew they had an email. And guess time. what? About 50 of them didn't have email. They wow. Just, I had to let them go as subscribers. I was like, if you don't have email by this point, this is like 2005 or six. Maybe you shouldn't be in business. Yeah, you kind of know it's coming. And they probably aren't in business anymore. <laughs> I love that one. If you if you didn't get your newsletter, you probably aren't in business anymore. That's right. Yeah. So were there any big challenges that really kind of struck you, like the ones that you didn't overcome or you know problems that you wish you had overcome at least sooner or quicker or whatever? 
I mean, uh, email forwarding was is still a challenge. There's very easy to steal. Uh, oh and, yeah, there's really nothing you can do about that, is it? No, I mean there are things, but they would make it harder to open the email. And I don't want to. I always say it's, it's you know half the industry reads it, and half the industry steals it. So yeah. at least everybody's reading it. You know that's all I care about. Getting the email, there's spam and there's technical problems. But the biggest problem to me was replicating my voice with other writers mm-hmm. not i can't obviously we have three dailies i can't do it all and and trying to so, find harry jr was a challenge yeah and and it's it's been very rewarding because we we all write i don't think people can really distinguish and uh, i think our honestly i think our writers now are are better than i am technically as far as listening to a three-hour presentation and pulling the best points out of it and putting 200 words together. <laughs> Maybe I haven't lost the ability, but I've definitely lost the will <laughs> to do that. So Yeah, anything and, you do day in, day out for years. You kinda, yeah, I'm getting too old to, to do shit like that. But I can, I can still look at an IRI report and somehow you do it so long that it's like, you know, like the perfect, the beautiful mind. Yeah, the numbers start popping off the chalkboard, or yeah. You know, well, you kind of see the yeah. patterns, probably. Yeah, you, you see that. patterns, and it's been a great ride, man. Training people, but it, it is also the, the most satisfying because it takes years, but like the group we have right now is just awesome. Which yeah. means you know somebody's going to quit or get pregnant or you know. So, not, yeah, you shouldn't have said that out loud. I shouldn't I, have said it. I will try to scrub that from the recording. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it'll still happen. <laughs> yeah. So you started Craft Beer Business Daily, I believe, in uh, Craft Beer Daily in 2011. Yeah. Right. Kind of at the, so we opened and we, we incorporated in 2011. So that was a big time when mm-hmm. obviously there were some big changes. What prompted that change? I'm just curious. Did you did you realize you were underserving a market, or did you realize that your or did you get requests from your people, your, your current members, that you were missing things they wanted to know about? Really, it was I had three sons, and that was when the first one was starting college. So I just needed the money. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't double your uh, current membership, but you yeah. could add another thing yeah. to pay for. <laughs> Which is I every, mean, business, every business does that, right? I mean, it, that's that's just part of the equation. But really, yeah. also, your business daily was too long. Like it mm. was just, there was so much, as you know, Trying so much it. going on in craft, especially at that time. I felt like, especially with my heavy distributor readership, a lot of them didn't care. <laughs> yeah, no, that was like my next question. Is, it, is they just didn't, uh, they wanted to know what the top five brewers were doing, what the top five distributors were doing, the gossip, and that's it. We went with capital distribution in before they merged back in 2013, and they were so into it. They were like, the management was like, we got to do this. We're into this. And they had no desire to learn it. Like you could right. tell they hadn't talked. They hadn't thought about it. And and so I'm sure in 2011, they were like, crap, fuck that. I don't want to write that. So yeah, yeah, I imagine it had to be an uphill struggle with some of your incumbents to even just, you know, for them to want to know that stuff. So, yeah. And it, <clears throat> you know, when, once the, the, the publication gets over, you know, like two pages, people stop opening it. Like mm. there is, like we can't just add Oh, just add it. You know, it's it's digital. People get in the habit, and if it starts getting too long, they'll stop opening it. So it really is an editorial process. And you asked earlier, like, how do you find things to write about every day? And that that was that's how it was in the beginning. But now it's what do we cut? I mean, mm-hmm. There's just so much, and so it did warrant you know a separate publication. Now I, I do wish, and we could probably still do this because it's called Craft Business Daily. But I, I would like to incorporate crafts more craft spirits 
into that publication and make it more of a craft beer and craft spirits publication, mm-hmm. if you will. Because we also have Wine and Spirits Daily, which covers the big guys over there. That publication could and probably will evolve into big beer publication, big wine and spirits, and then craft covers both the small spirits and small brewers. So I don't mind jumping around, but uh, let, let, I want to ask you, why do you think that uh, that's not happening in wine? curious you have small wineries and they're boutique wineries but yeah, they don't really try to segment themselves dramatically i mean to an extent they're you know they're anti a stag's leap or something like that that's owned was owned by a uh, yeah well, i mean because they don't have mega brands to compare themselves to i mean they don't have bud miller like if you, if you want to call gallo or something like that but i mean Trincaro, uh, i think is another big one but yeah yeah it's the very few giant brands and so I don't think the consumer can tell what is craft. It's all craft. I mean, they've positioned themselves, even the bigger brands. Conceptually. Conceptually. At that point. And, yeah. Like, a, you know, a silver oak or, or something like that that's high, way, very high end, but pretty mainstream. Mm-hmm. You think that's craft. And yeah. And, you know, wine's not, everybody said it before a million times, it's not a branded business. It's a, it's a style business. You ordered by style to Fleming's last night where they first, you know, what style of wine do you they don't. Uh, it's 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 a different ball game. I mean, you only got two or three, maybe per style on by the glass, and otherwise you're buying a bottle. But yeah, yeah, you definitely see that with spirits. Although I don't know how much of a, a flavor difference I see because I, and I like a lot of craft spirits, especially when it comes to like there's a couple of Texas whiskey guys I enjoy. And when it comes to vodka or gin, I don't really care about the craft side of it in that sense. But I, as much as I enjoy those flavors, I can't dramatically see the difference between an Eagle Rare and an Andalusia as far as like the quality of how it's made or whatever. I just think they're both yeah. good. So, but I know there's, there's a difference as far as the story goes. And so that definitely makes sense that you wanted to fragment that out. People are going to flame me for this, but spirits <laughs> and wine, it's just so, they're easier to make. You know, it's hard to fuck it up. Beer is very difficult to make. Well, listen, you've made a lot more beer than I have because I've made this much beer. Zero. <laughs> but the record show, he's got a zero. I've got a zero. <laughs> so, but you know, just I've been in, I've been in many wineries, I've been in many breweries, and I've been in many distilleries, and just keeping beer, keeping it clean, is mm-hmm. is harder. And, and yeah, so that was one of the early on. So we transitioned from doing pure culture beer to mixed culture beer, and I played around with it a little bit. But the full transition didn't happen until 2017 is when uh, we basically started making beer the way that wine is made uh, to an extent. And that was shortly after or I don't know exactly when, but I started visiting a lot of Texas wineries and we were using a lot of their ingredients in our beer and kind of started stealing some concepts and some just the way the flavor hits your palate and that kind of thing. I went on a bottling day and I was floored. You motherfucker, this is so much easier than the shit that we have to do. Would they, you know, they pre-purge with inert gas, but other than that, yeah. I mean, some of them aren't even rinsing the bottle. They're, like, they're not. It was just such a different approach, and everybody's chill. And when you go to a brewery on packaging day, they're micro looking at every single thing. If you get a slightly over dissolved oxygen, the beer's going to be ruined. Like it's just, yeah, it's a very different yeah. ballgame. Yeah. yeah, you're like in hazmat suits coming in there. Yeah, you know, with, with the microchips and yeah. It, it's it's different. I, I remember this seems like a flex, but I I was I was uh, I was talking to August Bush the fourth. This is like eight years ago. They were talking about getting into spirits. AB was really and and they did. They came out with this awful thing, thing called Jekyll and Hyde. First of all, it, it's supposed to taste like Jägermeister. So, no, so that was their target. Yeah. So it's supposed to taste <laughs> like shit. <laughs> and it, 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 
They succeeded. Wow, good job, it, guys. It was Jekyll and Hyde. It was two bottles that stuck together, and you're supposed to pour them together, and like one was licorice, and anyway. That is weird. So we were talking about that, and, and I was like, well, you know, why are y'all doing this? He goes, do you know how much cheaper it is to make liquor than it is to make beer? He's like, it's cheaper. It's easier to make. It doesn't have a shelf life. It's, it's a wonderful business. And I think... He's, they were a little before their time, and maybe that concept wasn't the best. But now you see that the brewers are figuring that out, even the big brewers. And everybody's getting into everybody's chili. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't need to name names, but making vodka, for example, I don't know. There may be one or two producers in the state of Texas that actually distill their own vodka. Everyone else just buys neutral grain spirits, which sure. is fine. It's a business model that works. But at the same time, if we were to try that in beer back in 2012, we would have gotten the place burned down. Like that's you know, not, especially with craft beer. I mean, yeah, it's it, it, it was a different world for sure. It is funny. Like the consumer has changed from caring about the the story and the progeny. And I just see, I see Gen Y not, not giving this a fuck really. No, I mean, not at all. I mean, you're, are you seeing that too? I mean, it's, yeah, that's I, anecdotal, but I mean, like, 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 Last night, I was at dinner with my son, who's in his early 20s, and his girlfriend. Yeah, like I said, we were at Fleming's, which, whatever. But I was like, do you know that they, they don't do this anymore? But just a few years ago, like, when you ordered dessert, they would bring a whole cart out with the desserts like on, right? Them all. Yeah. yeah, you know, like you know, restaurants do. And they thought that was the most absurd thing in the world. Like, that was just the most ridiculous waste of time. I was like, yeah, but you get to see what, you know, and what the chef comes out and tells you. And you're like, yeah, but why? It's too- some pageantry to it. Come yeah. on, guys. Yeah. They don't give a fuck. They Remember, wanna... Wardens did that with the steaks. Yeah, there's like... They bring out the uncooked steak and let you pick. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All the pageantry mm-hmm. and all that. That's out. Uh, they're like, give, give me a QR code. So that I can scan and look on my phone and see what you have for dessert. And I can order the seltzer to go with it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> this changes for sure. Over the years, you've watched craft beer kind of try to take over. And so, especially like when we were starting out 2011, everybody we met, including like the other people opening breweries and the fans of craft beer at the time, it was all this us against them that we're going to go back to authenticity, that we, we want to know like where the beer is made, who's making it, local made a thing. Essentially, the whole the whole idea was arm in arm, Texas Craft Brewers Guild, Brewers Association, kind of, you know, marching down the, the aisles at the stores and putting our beer where, where Budweiser, Miller & Coors used to be. And I think I'd sent you some of those numbers so we could talk about them. But in 2009, craft beer was like 7% of domestic beer sales. 2015, it was 21%. In 2020, it's still only 23%. And like, I don't think that's happening, I guess, is the, the question that I would have for you from your perspective. You've seen the market share erode, obviously, for the big guys, but have you seen it erode to the extent that we thought it was going to, or even to an extent that they give a shit? So. <laughs> well, um, uh, you know, I think a, a couple of things are happening there. And, and one is that, you know, millennials are getting older. It's fattening. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when you get older, that's it's a natural to, to, to move to lower calories stuff. And well, like you said, you're not drinking as much beer. Yeah. I'm not either. Well, since I sold a brewery, especially, maybe I'm mad at beer, but yeah, I definitely <laughs> cut it out. And, uh, and yeah, and, and, and also I think craft brewers got a little bit over their skis and patting themselves on the back and being like 
I'm trying to think of the right word, like a little too precious, you know, as far as how we not, not value you. the product. Not, not you. <laughs> oh, I, not I you. will absolutely tell you that I was part of that. So but, I, you're not going to hurt my feelings at all. And, you know, the consumer went along with that for a while and then, until they didn't, until it was like, you know, this isn't a religion. We're not mm-hmm. saving people. We're not pulling people out of Afghanistan. We're not, you know... It, it's a little too serious and we, we just want to go to a place where we can bring our kid and our dog and, you know, and have a few lager beers. Yes. Lager beer. What's the number one beer at Buffalo Wild Wings? It's Bud Light. Okay. And it has been forever. And it has been forever <laughs> and it will be. I mean, you know, people forget people do like, like lager beers and yeah. And ales too. You know, that I think just the consumer went along for so long and then, you know, through the lack of diversity is another issue that, you know, we we should have and could have and kind of and did see coming mm-hmm. that was going to bite everybody. I mean, you, all you have to do is is go look at uh, Triumph the Comic Dog. That was four years ago, and when was he, it? When he's at uh, yeah, when he's at the uh, what the be the what is the Great American Beer Festival in Denver, and you know every other joke was about how how white it was, you mm-hmm. know, and, and how how racist, you know, just, everybody's kind of going. <laughs> like this nervous laughter but the demographics you know aren't sustainable for to to go past 20 percent. i mean yeah if, if that's if, if it's just white guys so do you think and we'll get more into that in a minute but quickly before we take a quick break do you think that it will go past are we going to be or i guess i'm not we anymore i'm not a crappier owner but i am a crappier podcaster uh, so anyways yeah. we can we go to 30 is there a is there a pathway to 40 like is it realistic it depends on the definition. If you're talking about the BA's definition, then probably not. I mean, at least not the, the palate's going the other way, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, look at the hottest thing right now is hard seltzers, which is just the opposite of craft beer. But, you know, if you count hard seltzers coming out of a craft brewery and then, then yeah, I mean, if they get creative with not just the definition of craft beer, I don't know if they changed the definition. Maybe I don't. I, I, it's they have a few times, but I, yeah. we're going to get into that after my little quick break here. But yes, but yeah, I mean, if, if you're not going to be like treat it like a religion and that you're too good to make a seltzer or a fruit forward beer or something different, a Mexican style light lime lager, is that a pure craft beer? A lot of people wouldn't think so, but yeah, if, if you're making that shit, then yeah, it can go, it can go up. Uh, you know, people do still like smaller producers; they like local. They want to support uh, independently owned businesses, and so, but but you gotta you gotta follow the palate too. You can't just make what you like, throw it up there, and force people to come along with you. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, people are drinking hard kombucha. Yes, they are. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's take a really quick break, and we'll come back, and I want to talk to you a little about the Brewers Association and where they get those numbers and uh, kind of yeah. what that means. So. All right. Thanks for sticking with us. And welcome back. What I want to ask you about is. We talked about those numbers, the 2011, 2014, 2018 numbers, and, and you had asked me if the definition of crap beer changed, and I'm sure you knew the answer to that. And so, I would like to talk to you a little bit about that because you got a few issues with the Brewer Association overall, and they answer your question, so I don't expect you to go down this roll with me. But um, for one, they're self-reported numbers. I don't know if you knew that. They're not using yes. tax numbers, and even if they are, like we said, they don't necessarily re- represent accuracy. But so... It, they use self-reported numbers, and those self-reported numbers are the numbers that they use to decide your membership price. So, if you're a brewery that's a member of the BA, 
and you do, I think it's a, a, a thousand barrels a year, it costs 295 bucks. If you do uh, 800,000, it costs 15,000. So you've got a little incentive to guide down also. But anyways, not the point. Yeah. Point <laughs> is um, they have changed it. So like in 2011, they changed it to allow Boston beer to stay in because Boston beer was growing faster than the market as they typically do. And so they changed it then. They changed it in 2014 to make it where you could add adjuncts, which let Yingling come in. So that dumped a ton of production and value, obviously, into those numbers and swelled them up with even just those new players coming in. And then I think it was 2018 that they decided that even if you make 48 million barrels, as long as only 6 million or less are beer, you can make anything else you want, <laughs> seltzers or RTDs or whatever. Right. And so they're continually changing those things to allow this, the bigger players to come in, which obviously swells their numbers, raises the average production, at least on their numbers per brewery, the average sales dollar per brewery. I think that that definitely skews the data and that if I were an investor or a new brewery owner considering opening that I'd want a truer number than that. I assume yeah. you've seen them change that number and do you think that's good for what you're trying to report? Because again, you have a different perspective than me, so I don't expect well, you to agree with me. Yeah, I mean, no, we, we get our numbers from a variety of sources. So, mm -hmm. the Brewer Association, because we don't define craft like they do. We, we define craft like IRI and Nielsen do. So, which is, uh, which I guess now is not that much broader. I mean, <laughs> they've moved the goalposts, like you said, so many times. I mean, because no one really uh, got kicked out unless they were AB owned or something like that, right? Like yeah. Uh, right. And so, Ken Benicio <laughs> is a term I learned. It means who benefits. I think letting in those members is, is a financial issue for them, you know, because, you know, they, they've had such a, rough year with COVID because all, all the money that they get from those conferences. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it, broadening the definition does soften the numbers. Absolutely. And it's, does the consumer think Yingling is a craft? Some of them. Some have, people do. Some people do. Yeah. yeah. If, especially if you're outside of Pennsylvania or the East Coast, Northeast. It was interesting when they launched here as you saw a bunch of craft guys, the retailers at least, that were just, you know, we're not going to have that up here. And then a bunch of the more savvy guys were like, why the fuck would I not? Like, we sold four yeah. kegs the first weekend. So, oh, we, yeah. at the end of the day, as much as we are in it to change the world through craft beer, we also need to make money to do that. So, right. I get it. Yeah. And that's the thing. I like, we spend a lot of time on it. I, I, I mean, I don't even care. The consumer does certainly doesn't care. And we spend a lot of time talking about it. And, you know, to me, it's like if you want to call yourself a craft, Tito Beverage calls himself Kraft Vodka. Right. So, I mean, come on. Internationally it's, distributed. It's the largest vodka in the world, I think. Mm -hmm. The largest in the U.S., at least. Um, so, it's still made on pot stills. Yeah, still, <laughs> still, still handcrafted on uh -huh. the label. So, it must be Kraft, right? I mean, and I, I think a lot of people think Shiner's Kraft. And Shiner calls themselves Kraft. And they're pretty, I mean, they are Kraft. They're big. But old-timers around Texas would never consider Shiner a Kraft. Shiner was like Yingling back in the day. Yeah. And well, to know, an extent, it kind of is. Just it still is. They just this Carlos had the foresight to bump the price up to, to almost you know to between that craft and domestic level, whereas Yingling stayed at domestic. So it's interesting to watch Yingling come into Texas because I suspected it would take from Budweiser and Shiner, and from what I've heard is that it took it took from Budweiser, hmm. but in Bud Light, yeah, pretty heavy. 
I just I expect it to be more macro oriented, but I just have expected it to be more across the board. Like that it would be maybe not yeah. Blue Moon, it's a different flavor profile, but at least for the first weekend it probably was. It was probably everybody in that space maybe tried it and then they all went back to them. Fuck that, not even that great of a beer. <laughs> yeah. I, I will be honest, I drank a few the first weekend they were released just to be an asshole, which it talks a little bit about my personality, but because I just was going to drink a non-Texas beer and it was part of the problem and it just to stir things up. But yeah. my little $28 bar tab probably didn't make a difference. <laughs> Anyways, one of the other things about the BA that I've seen and I think is interesting is that whenever they release their numbers, I have not been able to find their insights and analysis where they've said that there's a trend line down or admitted that times may be tough going forward. And it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Let's clarify that. But I didn't wasn't able to find it. Like, for example, they did a mid-year one um, in right. August of mm-hmm. 2021. And there were some comments on there. There was a headlines in there, like, slight majority of breweries back to growth. It was like, spend is creeping back down. It's like, we're still below 2019. But the main thing on the front page was all data suggests trending improvement. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird insight to pull from those miniature headlines throughout. So, yeah. It's... Well, I, you know, the, the BA's always been like that. Like, they consider themselves big cheerleaders, yeah. you know. And so, it's, there's a lot of always spin right there. And it works, you know. It works when everybody is up 20%. It's, you know, it's right. great. But when money's flowing in. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, and the segment is still growing. I mean, it's 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 like... It's not growing as much as seltzers and F&Bs, but it is still growing better than domestics, you know, right. domestic lights and, and what have you, or not growing as less. <laughs> what, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> growing insinuates that it's great. It's right. slight, but it's it's, it's, neg- yeah. it's negative growth. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't have a problem with the BA doing that overall. I mean, definitely you want somebody out there. And, of course, they're doing positive lobbying, positive education. But, like, when I decided to write the book and start the podcast, where I saw that there was a hole is that if I'm a new brewer and that's the basic body of knowledge that I go look to decide how I – if I should run a craft brewery and then how, I think there's a big hole in that story. And, and that was – And that's, that's always kind of been the case because, you know, even – 10 or 20, 10 and 20 years ago, like going to a craft brewers conference and they say, how many people are in here are craft brewers? You know, raise their hand. How many people here want to be craft brewers? And it's like, you know, 70% yeah. of people raising their hand. Like it, the, the craft brewer, the, even that association was a farm, you know, who encouraged people to become brewers, which is uh, for the current membership, I'm not sure is a great thing. Like don't, don't we... Slower growth would have been better for the industry, but it is what it is at this point. Yeah. Right. I mean, for a time, that was a good strategy because you did, the more people that were brewing beer in more communities, the more people were aware of craft beer. I think pretty much everybody's aware of craft beer now. And and so, at some point, you do have to tell people the truth and that you're not in the beer business, you're in the restaurant business. And beer is a nice uh, side business. But if you want to to be a, a big boy packaging brewery and... And, you know, and distribute, then I don't have to tell you, it's a money sucker. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't know that the regional beer model has hit place anymore. So that you're getting squeezed out for sure. Which oh, is why yeah. you see Yingling growing. I think they're, they're learning yeah. that. They're like, well, we either got to grow or shrink and which one do we want to do. And obviously most yeah. people usually go for growth, but yeah, you either want to be, you know, hyper local where you're the beloved brand that everybody knows in your community. Uh, but once you get out of that and you start being regional, then you're on the radar. You're on the radar of the big guys. When you start showing up in IRI, 
you don't want to show up in IRI, bud. That's when Anheuser Busch starts looking at you and like, how do we kill that? And target it. And how do we call? You know, who do we have to call to get this motherfucker off the shelf, right? And they can make those calls, and that's why it's so hard. You know, that's why re- being regional is the worst of both worlds. First of all, you're in a ton of debt to grow. You had to expand the tanks and the bottling line, the canning line, and then you know, second of all, you either want to retreat back to your core market or you want to go national, and both those options suck. <laughs> Right, yeah. because the national probably won't work, and then going back, you you gotta cut people and kind of retrench. I mean, I mean, Dogfish Head went through it. You know, they came out on the other side okay, but you know, they thought they were going to be national and they had to retrench. And even the successful ones have seen some some times. You know, even like Bell's came into Texas, kind of like Ealing, yeah. just you know, dominated for about a minute, and then they're on the shelf still, but I'm sure their numbers are dramatically down. And you see what Green Flash, you know, they had to close a bunch of breweries, go back home. And they don't, neither of those guys make bad beer. No. Like, you know, the beer's fine. But right. It, packaging's cool. Like, it just, it doesn't, yeah. but, you know, but, super. But what does is, what is a, what is a guy here in New Braunfels need to, need to buy a Green Flash when he's, there's, there's other IPAs that are just as good that he recognizes where they're from. What tie does he have to San Diego? Maybe he's been to La Jolla and he played golf there, so that's why he balls it. But yeah, otherwise, you know, it's not like, oh my God, Green Flash makes the best beer in the world. We have to have it in San Antonio, Texas. I mean, come on. There was a minute where, and maybe this is like 14, 13, I don't remember, but a uh, palette record was here and it, there were bars that would be like, this is the best beer ever. Yes. Um, and it was truth in advertising it was an absolute shit show in your mouth but whatever people liked it but obviously it didn't last and it's, it's not something you have 10 of either that night so there's that yeah. issue but since we're kind of skirt down that issue what, what do you think that the craft beer guys have done wrong and let's i guess specifically talk about like the like one state or maybe three state model like from going from that to some of the guys that have tried to go national, like what, you know, what have you, obviously you reported on the way have you seen that they haven't done that they should have or that the big guys did in their place? The biggest mistake I see is that they go with a wine spirits distributor because they can cover the whole state with one distributor. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this is easy. You know, <laughs> I ship to one person, one invoice, you know, it's awesome. You know, those guys, they're great. Great distributors. They don't cover C stores. They don't, unless they have a separate division mm-hmm. just for beer. They don't, they're not draft beers it's an afterthought. So, you know, that's usually a mistake. They're not going to get the coverage they want or the focus because the margins are so small compared to their wine and spirits book. And then um, the second thing is along the same lines is that they don't, they don't really study the market and which distributor to go with that would be a good fit. They just like, all right, I'm going to go with Miller Distributors or I'm going to go with AB or whatever without really investigating which one might be not just a better fit covering the market, but just a cultural fit. I mean, you got to like the guy. You got to like the girl. If you think the person's an asshole, then you're not going to have a good (laughs) business relationship. I'm sorry. That old trope that that Sam Caligione says that Crap beer's 99% asshole free is, hasn't held up that well, has it? I Maybe mean, when he started, it was. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's, it's not that way anymore. And um, no, I can make you a list. <laughs> yeah, I can too. And, you know, and I think that's, that's another uh, flaw is that a lot of these guys drink their own Kool-Aid and they just insufferable pricks and distributors and retailers don't like to put up with that shit. You see it, uh, in the, you know, it's just over and over again. And, 
you know, and it brings everybody down. It brings the nice guys down because you know if you if you go and ask distributors now, it's like you know they have a great relationship with ninety percent of their customer their uh, what suppliers, but there's always that ten percent that they don't like, mm-hmm. and it's just a personality. And guess what? They're not going to sell their beer. They're not going to push it. They're not going to go that extra mile. They're not going to put together an incentive. They're not going to uh, put you on the banner at the special event or pour you there. These are these little things that matter. And it a lot of it has to do just with the relationship with the distributor. Yeah. Does it, it, you know, trying to hard-ass your way into that is not the way to do it. You can do it if you're, you know, if listen, if you're Constellation, go for it. Yeah, that's a little different. They were yeah. obviously established. You can't even do it if you're Molson Coors anymore. Really? Yeah. But, I mean, Molson Coors, the distributors will tell them to go fuck themselves. I mean, you saw it in you know, my newsletter yesterday. So, it's in other words, there's a little bit of kiss-assery that has to go out down here. And I know craft brewers just aren't good at that. <laughs> it's part of the problem, and there's a lot of them, but part of the problem is that well, a lot of us got in this industry because of the art and the quality and the, you know, we were, we drank a Belgian triple and it blew our minds and we're like, holy shit. Right. Yeah. And so we thought because it would work for us that you lead with a quality product and then everyone's got to get in line. You know, consumers right. are going to be like, dude, well, that guy's clearly the best. So we got to buy that. And the distributor's like, well, the consumer agrees that that guy's clearly the best. So we got to carry that. And it just, it doesn't work that way. And, and maybe it did for a minute. It doesn't now. Yeah. And so a lot of us are sort of like left Without the education and experience and maybe even just ability to run the business side of things. And the distributors are at little choke point. They're like, you don't figure it out. We don't have time for you. That's exactly right. And I get it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think brewers resent that the distributors don't know how hard it is to make the beer. (laughs) Or care. You know, they want it in the truck there. They want this FOB. Price, beer, BOS, you know, very simple. Rep in the market, rep in the market, tastings. Yeah. Yes. The very business oriented and always said, you know, just distributors from Mars, crappers from Venus. And culturally, there's a cultural divide there. But it's I, getting better. I, I feel like when I first started, it was way worse. Keep in mind, when I first started, you couldn't walk into the building without a coat and tie on. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. Like, even if you were a driver, you had to wear a tie. Like, it, you couldn't have a beard. You couldn't have a tattoo. Crappers coming in with their sandals on, their long hair, and their beards. It was They're like, not having who, it. who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. Like, you know, how do we let him through security? You know? And so, it is It is better now. What do you think has changed that the distributors got more patience with us dipshits or that us dipshits have uh, I think learned how to run our businesses? I think it's both. <laughs> like, honestly, yeah. It's both. And But... Definitely distributorships have have softened their ways. Although, you know, at MBWA in Vegas last week, everybody, had, I was the only one there without a sport coat on. I was like, really? surely nobody wears sports coats anymore. And I, I, I looked a little odd man out. Yeah. So, there's, it's, there's still a little culture divide. But, uh, and at the end of the day, for sure, those guys, I mean, they still make the majority of their money from light lager, um, international conglomerates. And so... Yeah. As much as they have divisions and employees that care, we're not paying their fucking bills. Yeah. I mean, that's the reality of the thing. So, I get it. Yeah. Uh, it used to piss me off in 2011 and I realize now that that was really, really stupid. And so, <laughs> the industry – so, like, it, it's one of those things, like, as craft guys, we came in thinking we were going to change and, you know, usurp the system 
And the reality, the system didn't want to change. And so <laughs> right. they gave a little, but they may have given all they're going to give. Kelly, I mean, it's, that's very true because I remember, you know, Scott Metzger. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is early in the days when we just started flying that or whatever it's called. And we're going to get a bill pass that's going to, you know, allow beer to go from the brewery. And I said, oh, I, I, I didn't, I hadn't realized that because I, I, I thought the distributors were going to kill it. Oh, really? And I was like, oh, geez, you don't know. You don't think they would want to? You know, <laughs> you don't know. He didn't know. It was so cute. So I got him a, a meeting with a, a distributor and we, we had lunch. The guy, you know, the distributor was like, Scott, you got to work with the distributors. This won't make it out of committee. Mm-hmm. And it was an education. And, and then five years later, Scott got the bill passed, you know, but it's patience. I don't know how I got on that tangent, but. That was part of his whole business model from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, he he put a lot. I mean, he had to have that bill passed. Mm-hmm. It's a weird bill. It's a weird law. Well, I think most states have some sort of ability for a, a local brewery to sell something to go, and it makes sense. Like we're we're never going to do much there. You know, don't don't allow any more flexibility in the market than you have to. And I get that, but at some point, it's just not going to move the needle for them. Um, I don't think. But yeah, quick question. One of the things that. We always, again, we always thought we were going to take the market share away. And you mentioned that if you get on that report, that uh, AB is going to target you. Overall, have you heard, or what's your sense of, you know, the blood milk recorders of the world? Like, are they even still worried about continued craft beer growth like maybe they were 10 years ago? Or is it kind of leveled off and they've, it's they've le- bought a lot of us? So I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> it's leveled off definitely. I can speak, especially for AB, they've bought what they want to buy, they have a good footprint nationwide of craft brewers that they want that they can build off of you know they may you know they may buy here or there but i think they're buying sprees over uh, same i get that sense with molson coors and constellation and constellation <laughs> got its ass kicked they may not want to for yeah a while. i mean yeah. you know I mean, billion dollars in what it used to be and if they still have a strong revenue stream yeah they'll, they'll make it back so. isn't it amazing that they could literally take a they could have taken a billion dollars and lit it on fire in the parking lot and it still just didn't really affect us this that day. We're giving it to every American. Yeah, I mean, every American could have gotten those, you know, hundred bucks. <laughs> something. <laughs> when I rough math, I don't like math. Yeah, me neither. Although, speaking of which, we're, let's do a quick break, and then I do want to ask you some math questions oh, good. <laughs> uh, about some like your revenue numbers and kind of the trend line in just a second. So let's take a quick break. All right. So hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com, or just type Brewery Direct into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. All right, welcome back. We talked about some of the numbers from the Brewer Association, but uh, they also do a revenue number, kind of shows where craft brewery revenue was. And, and again, I think these are 
I don't know where they get these numbers from. This one, I apologize. I should have gone and double checked. But basically, from 2009 to today, we've we've gained you know eight eight thousand breweries or 7,500 breweries total. But 2009 numbers was four and a half million per brewery. 2015 numbers were 5.2 million per brewery, and that was at that point where we allowed Yingling to come in. So the growth looks like it was probably mostly Yingling, if not. The net effect was that regular craft was down and Yingling added to it to, to make it look not as bad. For 2020, they got two and a half million bucks per brewery. And since they changed the rule, they theoretically aren't counting seltzer. Now, I don't know how they're doing that based on the fact that, uh, they would, again, with the reporting information, I don't know exactly where that number comes from. You said you get your numbers from other places, so you may have some different trend lines. But I'm curious when I look at that, that looks to me like the market's getting tighter and tougher per individual brewery knowing that the guys at the top are still growing and doing well, um, yeah. at least largely, then that makes it look even worse for the small guy. Is yeah. that a trend you see continuing downwards? And, and if not, why? And if so, whatever. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, it's craft beer has a market share. The market share grows a little bit each year, but it's not It's not like it grows huge each year. And it's, mm-hmm. even now, it's not growing at all. Anytime you add breweries, that's going to cut directly into the uh, demand and, it, you know, you're slicing that demand pie ever so smaller and smaller with each new brewery that opens. You know, and also, like I said, I mean, it's it's also the brew pub. It's restaurant business. And it's not a great business right now. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but there's a pandemic going on. And it's, you know, and even if there wasn't a pandemic, it's still a tough business. You Margins know. are shit. And yeah. Margins are shit. There's a lot of competition out there. A lot of, you know, even chain restaurants are quality now. Fancy like Applebee's on a Friday night. <laughs> uh, everybody hates that ad. I have to say it's catchy. I'm starting to like it. Does it make you go? Absolutely not. <laughs> That's good. At least I'll give you that. Applebee's on Friday night. But yeah, I mean, that, that, that's... We're just seeing it's just a stupid number anyway. It's, it doesn't really mean anything because you're comparing Yingling to a you know a brew pub on the corner, mm-hmm. you know that does 500 barrels a year, if that. Well, there was a period like, and I don't know why I did this. Maybe just out of curiosity, or, or no, maybe I was just researching for the book. But I went and at one point I was able to get the BA's numbers, and then I went and got uh, Yingling's numbers, which I think they I don't think give you the exact ones, but they were close enough. And then Boston Beer, obviously, public trade, you could get that one. And when you X those out and then divide by the remainder of breweries, it was a number I didn't want to talk about. It was <laughs> it was in the hundreds of barrels per brewery, which is unsustainable for any one brewery. And that means that you know, how, no matter how you look at it, that roughly half of them were not profitable. There's no way they could have been. Right. And more, more of the ones I talked to here in Texas... Um, I don't know if I know one that's actually profitable for the year, but you'll have ones that have a fantastic July. And I'll talk about that for 12 months, but that ain't the same thing as having a good year. Right. <laughs> it's just been a shitty year. And, and it's, I'm surprised that as many breweries have survived, honestly, that I guess the PPP loan was a big help. PPP did some things and actually helped us keep employees, but it was the EIDL that made the difference. And actually, so I have a, I, don't, I, I hate to do predictions, but I'm going to do a prediction anyways. Right. I got March 2022 as uh, the day that craft beer goes into the fucking receivership. And there's a few reasons for that. And I think that the EIDL is one of them. That most of the breweries that I know, including some of the most popular ones in the area, are not profitable and haven't been for years. And so, 
you know, you get a little bit of a net loss or whatever. But if you've got the distribution and you're, let's say, doing, you know, 1.2, 1.5 million a year, the way the EIDL worked is you could get 75% of 2019 numbers. So they got the biggest check they've ever gotten in the history of their owner being open and hands down the most profitable year they've ever had. And I do think that most of that money will be gone by the end of this year. And most people I know that they've invested in something, adding a restaurant, whether it's Souls is adding another location. There's, you know, there's some, some guys really using the money to run far and wide with it. But, you know, you know, seasonal slowdown. And I'm curious your opinion on that. But December through February is always just absolute dog shit for, for us guys. Primarily that distributors in the end of December stop buying. So they have zero or low inventory on January or 1231. And then they buy slowly for January because that's obviously not a big drinker month of health fuckers. But, and, but even if they pick up, your distributor picks up beginning of February finally and you get a decent order that month, you don't get paid for it till the end of March. And I think most guys don't have the capital to, to you know, sustain themselves. So I think that March, April of next year is just going to be an absolute bloodbath. That's an interesting theory. And it makes sense though. A lot of it, also, it's going to depend on, are people going to party this holiday? Can they? <laughs> Can they? Yeah. And are they? Yeah. Well, we saw that even at our brew pub that uh, once it was okay to go out, people still weren't uh, in droves anyways. And so, like my mother and father-in-law, they're, uh, they would not appreciate me telling you how old they are, but they're older. And so, they just didn't, they didn't go to restaurants forever and they, they would get stuff to go and they would definitely still try to support their local economy, but... You know, that's not as often and it's not as fun. And yeah. so, they probably didn't spend as much. They didn't get the appetizer. They didn't have the two drinks and, you know, whatever. So, we saw our sales dramatically down even when things were back open uh, at the end of last year too. It's tough. I mean, I went to Luby's yesterday, closing it down last day. That location or the that, whole thing? Just the location. Okay. But it's the location right by my office. So, now what am I on? Now, now why am I going to go to the office? Not to work. You get the internet. I <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. And then also from last year to this year, we added over 400 new craft breweries, mm. which is asinine. If you think about it from a perspective of, wait, we're going to chop the pie up again? <laughs> but who's thinking, you know, I think it's a good time to start a brew pub. <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of them were people who were already in planning. Because, you know, a lot of people yeah. are taking years to get a brewery open um, as they should. But so they've, they've kind of gotten to that point where... It's your dream. It's your passion. You've been thinking about it for so long. You've made the business plan. And I think you just don't want to let go of it. Just plow forward. Mm-hmm. People will tell you all over, which is actually an interesting question for you, but I have heard from multiple people that we are not saturated in breweries. Let's say San Antonio, for example, because look how many is in San Diego. And so, by capita, right, we're not saturated, but I would dramatically disagree. I'm curious what your opinion is. Yeah. Um, San Diego is a different animal. Let's face it. And and, and, and same with Asheville There's some, you know, a place like that or, or, or Bend, Oregon or San Antonio is not a uh, craft beer town. First of all, it's hot as shit. <laughs> and, it's, you know, it's and humid. Don't forget that. It's just so hot and humid. It's just like just an IPA just sounds horrible, and, you know, when it's so hot outside. But, you know, it, but it's also just culturally. I mean, Austin is more of a craft beer town than San Antonio is. And... Dallas is more of a craft beer town than Houston. And it's just the kind of the demographic and the vibe in those towns. And so, so yeah. sell the shit out of Dos Equis here, though. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, I don't, I, it just it depends on where you are. And 
Tony McGee at Lagunitas used to say that uh, there will be enough breweries when every American has their own brewery. <laughs> I said, well, that seems extreme. And not remotely realistic, but yeah. No, no. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. That's easy. Yeah. Again, easy to say when you sail off with half a billion. No, I, I think it's definitely saturated. Unless there's an increase in demand for beer, which I just don't see coming. I mean... I think we're more likely to see uh, this whiskey distilling operations pop up. At least that segment's growing. Because you can't get enough bourbon in the United States. People are freaking out. Yeah. You have to age it. There's too many options. I just don't know. If, I think you're right. I think we're going to see more of a shakeout next year. Yeah. And, and I would like to clarify, I know it's people's hopes and dreams and it's their life savings. It's not yeah. a college theme. Right. But we need a correction. And so there is that also that. Yeah, it, it, you're right, though. It is, it's hard to use like a word like correction when you're talking about people's lives. Yeah. You know, it's not a, really a correction to them, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's the word of a disaster. <laughs> yeah, it's a disaster. And, and that's the thing. I mean, the, every, every brewery has a story, and there's always going to be exceptions. And there's, there's going to be a brewery that I, I know you're going to hate to hear this, okay? But there's probably a brewery that started this year. That five years from now will be a successful brewery, uh, you know, selling 30,000 barrels a year or something. And I know that pisses you off and it should because it's, it's not about, it's a lot of it is about timing and it's about luck. And it's, uh, there's just so many things to go into it. My friends and I talk about that a lot, that there, there are breweries that will never be able to go completely out of business because for some reason people are just willing to drink whatever nonsense they put out next. And it could be terrible. They'll still buy it and they'll just not say it's terrible. They'll just be like, eh, that's not my favorite and buy the next one. And I don't know how you recreate that. I think that's, that is a little bit of luck. It's a little bit of just somehow connecting with the brand. And it's just something that obviously my business was never able to do as, as many of them aren't. And so if you are, congratulations, you did great. But yeah, it's not, I don't know how you put that in a book to teach someone how to do. It's very difficult. I do want to ask you a little bit about, you had the girl from Owl's Brew on the other day, Maria Littlefield. Yeah. And she had one of those stories that just intrigued the shit out of me because obviously it's a, it's a unique product. They had been around for a while and then just all of a sudden during the pandemic, they basically went fucking nationwide, which I don't know every brewery, but I know quite a few of them. And I'm not seeing that happen anytime in the last year. So why did that segment of the market allow that? And just how was she able to make 20 different distributor connections in the worst <laughs> pandemic of the year? It's amazing to me. I'm just curious if you had that, any of that insight to that story and if that relates at all to craft beer, if there's a lesson there to be learned for some of the guys. Well, uh, I think a couple of things there. One, Maria's very sharp and, and she'd been through a couple of iterations of that brand, right? And mm-hmm. and I think they finally figured that they got it right in the timing. Like I said, timing is everything, right? And, uh, you know, a healthy, organic, low-calorie tea, you know, that that's just perfect timing for that. Hits perfect. Second, woman-owned, different. Mm. You know, how many... How many white dudes that look like us show up at distributors' doors every day? A lot. It's true. To have a, an accomplished, attractive woman that's, you know, two women that have started this brand, it's a different story. So, we can talk numbers and understand, yeah. Yeah. The, the demographic is there. It's a great story to tell to a distributor that, that would react. And so, I think that's, that's you know, and I, I don't, you know, she may have had also, you know, great contacts and a lot of money. And I, I don't know those details, but... Yeah, uh, those things would certainly help as well. 
But have you seen a craft brewery able to do that anytime recently? Like, just grow that quickly? Um, I mean, Yingling kind of did, but that uh, we all know that's an exception. Like, if they call you up, you take the call. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, you know, like the beatbox guys went national and Loverboy's trying to go national. and It's hard. If you open up a state successfully, word gets around. If you have the numbers to back it up, that helps too. Right. And, and that's another thing that people may disagree with me on this, but I think... Crafters make the mistake when they break up the network. In other words, if they go into a state and pick some Miller distributors and some AV distributors and some craft distributors and some wine distributor up here, you know, and mismatch, I mean, that's fine. That's that's great. But if you ever want to sell your business, that's not your business is unsellable. It's a humongous pain in the ass just from a reporting yeah. perspective too. And I know, like, you know, if you want, if, if if Constellation wants to come in and buy you, they want you to be with Constellation distributors already. They're not going to want to change distributors because they can't in mm-hmm. the states. So it's a negative value on your business if you're not with one distributor network. If you're angling to sell your business to a big brewer that services the same distributor network. Does that make sense? Yeah. If you want to sell to AB, you need to be with an AB network. Which a lot of guys would say that they're not, but... Yeah, come on. <laughs> There's always the back of your mind. I mean, shit, everything of mine's for sale. Once again, you'll take the fucking call. Yeah, take I'll take yeah. the call. All right, well, so you talked about distributors, and that was a question that I had that... Um, I know, obviously, since your newsletter is written to the mindset of the distributor, essentially, I am really curious. I don't have a great answer for 2011 when we started versus 2021 the net gain in distributors might be zero there there may be 10 percent, but um in, in all the markets we just there aren't new distributors well there. no there's quite a few fewer distributors than there were in 2010 there's been a few craft distributors pop up but for for net you know we've, we've lost we lose about 12 to 15 a year to consolidation so or even more some years yeah there's 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 fewer distributors for sure so how do you think that's impacted the ability to grow? And, and, and I asked that, especially with our brand, we were a niche product. Take that account. We were in bombers, which God awful. But um, it does make the beer taste better. It's just impossible to sell. As there are less new distributors, if you go from 15,000 breweries to eight, nine, let's say 9,000 breweries now, all those distributors can't take all those brands. There's not there's a net effect of minus 15% distributors. There's a net gain of 5x breweries. How the fuck does an industry supply that? How does it work? Well, I can mean, it? I, I, no, I, I think it can because here's the thing. is When you're talking about a distributorship, you're talking about a company, right, with trucks and employees. And it's really just a capital structure. Theoretically, it shouldn't matter how many distributorships there are. There could be one distributorship for the whole country. Mm-hmm. It would still he would own all of them, but they would still be warehouses and trucks. And so the, to me, it's not how many distributorships there are. It's how many trucks there are. And so when one distributorship buys another truck, they don't reduce the amount of trucks. They still have to service the whole market. Mm-hmm. So it technically shouldn't matter is what I'm saying. It's, I guess it would matter that, more on-premise would be my Well, when it, the, the reason that it does in practice matter is because the book gets so big. And if you're not in the top 50% of those brands, you're not going to get a lot of attention. Whereas if you were with a smaller craft distributor, you get the attention. So yeah, in that sense, you do lose something when you lose distributorships. But it also, I think it leaves an opportunity for the creation of craft distributorships. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. You know, where, where Reyes goes in and buys everything, 
So basically, you just have an AB distributor and Reyes, just like this market or San Antonio, just mm-hmm. two two distributorships now. Then you have Benny Keith coming in and doing craft only. See, so there's you get, you're getting, in other words, the marketplace is is filling in where it needs to be. Maybe not as fast as everybody would like it. So some of those distributors, and I, I was with a lot of these independent guys. So take that for what it's worth. That I've seen behind the curtain, and the uh, great and powerful Oz is about a foot and a half tall. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you talk to some of the independent small distributors too? Yeah, sure. I have. We're with a few. We're with one in Louisiana, Florida. We've been with one in San Diego. Um, one went out of business in Oregon, and then one in Indiana. And by and large, those guys can't or don't or won't have the conversation that we talked about with the numbers and uh, being able to really like strategically move things forward. What I see when I have these meetings with them is a lot of discussion and they maybe even have a goal, but then eight minutes after the meeting, you make a phone call back and nothing, nothing happens. I can't get, I can't get the line items in the meeting to actually turn into action items on the street. Right. Um, and I don't have that problem with like Tri-City. We didn't have that problem with Brown and in, in Austin. The big AB guys, there's usually a brand manager. There's usually someone that's configured out and you're just, I'm not seeing that. And yeah. also taking into account that four of the ones that we were with have gone out of business. And so, um, <laughs> I've seen that happen also. Right. I mean, that, that's the thing is people just forget that beer is heavy relative to its price. So, it's heavy to move around. It's expensive to move around. And so... You know, you really can't break even uh, to service a market unless you're averaging, uh, you know, at least 10 cases an account per week. So, if you figure in draft, it's a different equation, but let's just say cases. So, there's, there's only two variables there. There's only there's one numerator and one denominator. In order to make it work, you either have to service fewer accounts or you have to sell more beer. That's the only two those are the only two variables. And it's if you can't sell more beer, the only other option is to go to fewer accounts. And mm-hmm. that's what pisses the brewers off because they're like, why am I not in this account? We can't, you know, you, you can't service that. And, and you know, that's, that's I mean, that's when, that's when my father went out of business. You know, that's why I say he sold 8 million cases, went out of business. And someone like Houston, you, you can drive four hours a day oh, doing fuck that. fuck yeah, you yeah. Like 20,000 accounts. Yeah. And they all want it every day. For their $18 case. Yeah. <laughs> The economics of distribution are very, very simple. And it's just how many is your drop size per account. You're either servicing the account or you're not. The big guys, the, the Bud Miller Coors, they have those those high volume cases to cover the cost of making those accounts. So they're in the account anyway. Might as well drop off some craft brands on top. That's why they do a better job. Yeah, know? like when you go to like spec liquor stores here in Texas – Almost always when you see a distributor, the AB guy is delivering there, they're delivering pallets. Yeah. And then the uh, independent guy comes over with a uh, hand truck with, you know, six cases on it and, <laughs> and maybe a slim keg on the bottom or whatever. But yeah, it's just, you're not, you're not moving the needle compared to those guys. And when you can deliver a pallet, obviously your profit's much higher. Yes. Yeah. And I was with a distributor once. We were outside a grocery store and truck was back and I was like, dee, dee, dee. He goes, you know what that sounds like? Money. <laughs> yeah, that's a big sale. <laughs> yeah. At that point. For sure. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the uh, AB strategy to derail the uh, craft beer movement going forward. But let me take a super quick break and then come back and uh, we'll wrap that up afterwards. Before the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, 
Look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standards you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. So seriously, go to AccuBrew.com, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and I will truly thank you. Thanks for sticking around. We've, I'm going to wrap this up, but I got some good questions for you. I'm actually excited to hear what you had to say about it. So, all right. Seriously, just curious about your take overall. And you probably know the story better than me, but as far as setting the stage, that I feel like early on, at least before they bought Goose Island, that was part of the point, was that AB had sort of decided that the best way for them to compete with craft was almost to dilute the concept of craft, which I think they've done a good job of. Like they made, Shock Top. And if I remember correctly, there were a few brands they had where they tried to, however they had written the location of where that product was made was kind of making it where it wasn't an AB product early on. And um, I think they changed some of those things, but they, uh, you know, ZX Ventures bought Rate Beer, the online mm-hmm. rating site. Uh, they also got Northern Brewer Homebrew Shops and they're just sort of disrupting the industry overall and, and, and what craft beer means. They've, I think they bought a home delivery service in the UK. Um, and then with the brands they bought, I think they got it. I mean, in my opinion, they have a pretty badass lineup if they if they were trying to do what they're trying to do. Everything from, you know, mixed culture stuff here in the States to some of the oldest Belgian beer brands. And they really tightened up the game where if, if, if that was the only book available and they came to my brewery uh, and said, hey, we want to look at your guest lineup and, and here's what you have to pick from. I could pick things that tasted good and they would actually fit a lineup. So, I think they've done a good job with doing that. And I'm curious, A, if you think that that was part of their goal and B, do you think it worked as well as I did? <laughs> well, here's the thing. Uh, you know, there's two ABs or really three. So, there's pre and Bev AB mm-hmm. when the Bushes were in charge. So, when they were in charge, their strategy was very clear. It was denigrate, then imitate. This is in regards to craft beer? Yes. Okay. Integrate, imitate. Imitate, replicate, and then desecrate. Like they said it that way? No, it was uh, it was a writer, uh, uh, Jerry Jerry Camouche uh, yeah. said that uh, very famously. But it, it, it rings true. It was a, if we can't beat it, then we're going to copy it, then we're going to drop the price, and we're going to kill the category. <laughs> okay? So, you know, uh, Heineken. Heineken was coming up in the 80s and 90s. Anheuser-Busch was notorious for just terrible beer names. First of all, they're always five words long. So, (laughs) it was called Anheuser-Busch World Select. Okay? It's in a green bottle. All right? Just looks like Heineken. It looks exactly like a Heineken. They made it taste shitty, you know. Yeah. You know, they made it They made it taste like it had been on a boat for 30 days. Left in the sunshine. Left in the sunshine in a green bottle. (laughs) And then, you know, and then they... They sold it for, you know, a dollar less than Heineken, right? So, that you know, that they just constant. They went after uh, Boston Beer, Sam Adams, uh, because it was a contract brewer at the time. And they, they went on Dateline and talked about how, you know, Jim Cook doesn't even have a, own a brewery. It's in Pittsburgh or somewhere, you know. And, Somebody from AB did that? I don't remember. Oh, that. yeah. Francine Katz. She was a VP of communications. And, you know, Jim Cook went on Dateline and was, you know, his famous quote was, well... Ah, uh, you know, uh, if 
Julia Childs comes over and cooks dinner in your kitchen, it's still a Julia Childs meal. Which is a great point. Yeah, that is a good point. You know, big always doing that. They went after Sam Calagione, sued him for pumpkin ale because he uh, pumpkin. I do remember that. Um, they you know, they were just real assholes. And anytime anything came out, ice beer, they came out. They wanted to ruin that, kill that. They changed the uh, law for that one. Yeah, they, they've done a lot of things. Yeah. And that was, so that was AB. Then, uh, uh, you know, InBev buys them. They kind of continue uh, along. They didn't really know what they had, right? And then now the third AB is they, the Brazilians have figured out what they have. And they figured out that killing a category is much less profitable than riding that category and leading it up. And when I say lead up, I'm talking about price, price, price. I'm talking about mix, price mix. So they figured out that by going out and buying these craft breweries and brewing them in their giant breweries, they can make it much cheaper. Dramatically cheaper. Dramatically cheaper, still sell it at a very high price point and push consumers from conceivably Bud and Bud Light up to a higher priced McUltra, then to Stella, then up to the craft bands. See how that works? Mm-hmm. That's what the MBAs tell me. And then the uh, the real estate, obviously, they basically can own a whole shelf, kind of in a sense, too. And Yes, um, they, they can go to a, any chain uh, on or off premise and say, you really don't even have to deal with another beer company. We have everything except for a Mexican import. It's worth a shit. And that's a pretty big gap. But yeah, it's it's as great. You know, they have the levers. They have the share. Everybody, you know, we always say Bud Miller Coors or Bud Miller Coors Constellation. We forget. Anheuser Bush is twice as big as their next competitor, okay? And, and, and more than twice as profitable. So, anything that Miller Coors, Molson Coors does, think about it this way, costs them twice as much as it costs AB. Twice as much. So, if they want to go buy a van... That van is twice as much than if AB bought the same van per barrel. So that's the difference. And so they can do twice as much. They can have twice as many slim can lines. They can have twice as many breweries. They can beer there faster. They can spend twice as much on sports marketing. They can. So everybody says, why is AB so? That's why they have twice as much, you know? And uh, the Brazilians finally woke up and, and saw what they had. They had the resources and the levers to pull. And they have that that almost exclusive distribution network. Mm-hmm. Like, holy shit, we have this. We didn't even know what we had. We can come up with a brand and put it on 80% of all licensed accounts in America in 24 hours. Who can do that? Pepsi can't do that. Coke can't do it. Only AB. So it really is a magical thing that they have, and they figured it out. I mean, shit, I tried to tell them years ago. They nobody <laughs> listens to Harry. <laughs> Maybe eventually. Yes. Brito would endure me. I, I sat with him once. We were at the Obama Kerry debates in, in St. Louis. And we sat together. And, you know, it, he, we didn't know each other, but he knew he didn't like me. You know? right. And that's all he knew. He knew he just didn't, wasn't supposed to like me. And uh, we actually had a great conversation by the end of the debate. I thought we were great friends, you know. And, and then, uh, like, two months later, he, you know, called me and threatened to sue me and all this stuff. And it turns out in Brazil, they don't have the First Amendment, Kelly. So oh. he was... Uh, he, he thought you weren't, shouldn't be able to say whatever you wanted? Yes, yes, yes. And his their, their own attorneys, I think, apprised them that down here, we can pretty much say whatever the fuck we want. 
as long. And do as often as possible. As often yeah. We do exercise our rights. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, that's an interesting way to look at it. So, do you think that there's a hole in AB's game currently? Is there another product or channel that Mexican that imports? I mean, no one. Yeah, it is so ironic because they own Corona and Modelo. You know, everywhere else in the world except the United States. And do they not? Do they, you think they don't feel it's a hole? Because clearly, that's a massive segment in the United States. Oh, right? they know it's a hole. You know, they they try to come in with Australia, Estrella. Oh, that's right, and. You know, it's just even with fifty hundred million dollars, you cannot create demand these days. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. The media is so fragmented, and consumers don't just buy shit because of a cool ad anymore as much. I always mm-hmm. thought that one was a little bit of a weird word to say, and I understand that Modelo is kind of, and I get Corona too. They're both Hispanic words, but Estrella, this is a little yeah, bit. Estrella is hard. It's just even a little I, tough. Even I tripped up on it. I yeah, mean, from San Antonio. They're, they're going to keep trying. There'll be another Mexican beer, I guarantee you, next spring that they'll try and bring in, I'm sure. But Mexican seltzer, maybe? Yeah, probably. <laughs> it probably will be a ranch water or, yeah. or, or tequila and lime type thing. And that, that does, that's a weird, another weird topic is that just everybody's blurring into everybody's lanes. Nobody's yeah. staying in their lanes. Everybody's making everybody else's stuff. And it's fun. I like it. It's, it's fun again. I felt like we were going through the, you know, the last five years has been kind of, it's been the same bullshit. And then Corona hit and then Seltzer's hit. And it's been fun to report on things again. It's a lot of dynamics, a lot of shit going on. What's interesting is as an industry, all of us crap people were just like adamantly anti-Seltzer um, yes. in the beginning. And it's clear that uh, that is no longer the case. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't take long, did it? No. I, within maybe a year, people were already writing recipes and at least considering it. So, it's – and now there's a bunch of breweries that are – that's their – I think isn't – Boston Beer is really kind of being held up with it. Um, yeah. I know they're doing really well with it. And even domestically here in Texas, like I've seen guys that are doing it that are doing a lot of them, doing it well. We interviewed the guy at Buffalo Wall Wings, Jason Murphy. He's like a – the seltzer that's doing incredible in the Northeast that we carry is Willie's Super Brew Mango Fruit Seltzer. You know, yeah, it's like wow, that's he, he's like killing it. You know, on on draft, <laughs> so, it's a whole new world. Yeah, I think it's weird too because no one really knows where to put it. And I, as yeah. I was looking through, I, I thought it'd be interesting to contrast like what's in craft business daily versus beer business daily. And seltzer has a very prominent role in both of those, and, and clearly because it's yeah. prominent in both business models. But you know, I just I would never have thought that ten years ago. No, hell no, I wouldn't have thought it a year ago. Money talks, cases and, hide sins. I don't know if you know Southern Star in. Uh-huh. Uh, Houston or North Houston, but Dave, the owner, has a little rant that he did on Instagram about craft seltzers. And is there a difference? Like, do you know what this would even be? <laughs> so he he got pissed off. He was like, "What what is a craft seltzer? A craft seltzer is a seltzer that has fake ingredient typically in it. It doesn't have real sugar or I'm sorry, real fruit. So there is no craft seltzer. It's a seltzer seltzer. Anyways, yeah, I have to look that up on Instagram. Uh, he's he's a fun guy. I interviewed him too. His his interview will come out soon. He's one of those guys that I thought was like. He's been around Texas forever, you know, 20, 2007, I think, is when he opened. And I'm like, Dave, obviously, you know how to do it right. Tell us what we're doing wrong. He's like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> My last two releases bombed too. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> I know. It's so fickle. Yeah. What do you do? When, with that, like, you've obviously had a you know, long career in beer. You've seen cycles come and go. You know, what, do you, what, what do you see repeat itself year after year or decade after decade? Like, 
Is, is there anything that just kind of, we have Seltzer now, was that a similar product 10 years ago? Was it one yeah. 20 years ago? Like that kind of thing. Everything repeats itself. Everything. When I was a kid, it was California cooler. It was, it was wine coolers. And that was a product that, you know, probably kept my dad in business four years longer than it should, than he should have been. But, uh, then it was smeared off ice in the mid 2000s. That was a seltzer. It was, it was hot. This, this. I forgot about that. Zima. Yeah, too. Remember Zima. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, these trends come and go, but, but this one feels different. It's obviously a lot bigger than those were, but it's still the same thing. We go from sweet. America's uh, palate goes from sweet to bitter to sweet to bitter to sweet to bitter, seems like, and every few years, and we're in a sweet phase right now. It'll go back to bitter. You know, uh, the other thing, from a from big brewer's perspective, I've been doing it so long that I, when I see new management come in, <laughs> and they're like, we're going to do things different, and what they're doing inevitably is what the management did before the one that was current before them. <laughs> so you'll see this if you wait around long enough. You'll see that AB is going to go from 12 districts to eight to keep it simple. And they're going to do that for four years. And then when the next management comes in, they're going to say, you know what? We don't have enough hands-on. We're going to go from eight districts to 12. That's how we get stop value next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Molson Coors, I guarantee you, is going to change how many districts they have in the next few months because then, you know, things aren't going well. Prediction. You saw it here. You saw it here. And it'll be higher or lower depending on either simplifying or more hands-on. You can't have both, see? So, what do you think is one of the biggest misses that you reported on? So, like, you know, Anheuser-Busch releases a new thing or, you know, whatever that is. Like, what... You know, some big blunder that we, that we all forgot about that happened years ago. This is before Miller merged with Coors. Miller was run by a guy named Jack Dunnup. Jack came from AB. So there was a lot of people, a lot of Miller distributors felt that he was an AB spy. And like we're kind of laughing when we say this. There are distributors, big distributors, multimillionaires who still are convinced <laughs> that Jack McDonough was an AB spy. <laughs> okay. So McDonough comes in and he's like, we're going to do this the AB way. Okay, so one thing that Jack forgot is one thing I've already told you. AB makes twice as everything that Miller does costs twice as much. He did, he forgot that. He thought he was still at AB, right? He also still thought he thought he had control over his distributors like AB does. Mm. He they don't don't. So he goes, "Here's the problem." Okay? You with me now, Kelly? You I got gotcha. you. Your flagship brand is Miller Lite. That's a line extension. You need to have a flagship brand like Budweiser and Bud Light. Yours fucked up. It's Miller Lite is the flagship There's and no Miller, Miller High Life is the stepsister. <laughs> Just me telling this story is infuriating because do you think the consumer gives one fuck whether Miller Lite is the flagship brand? First of all, do they don't know what a flagship brand is, and why does it matter? Yeah, no when one I drinks look, Budweiser and Bud Light. Right, like, why, they're different brands. When I look back on it, I, I can't believe I didn't push back and say, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> well, you were afraid he's going to take that back to yeah, And I was young. So he comes out with Miller Red, okay? I don't remember this at all. <laughs> yeah, nobody does. It's, it's, it was just called Miller, but it was in a red... You know, he wanted to make Budweiser. I was like, if you want to make Budweiser, go fucking back to St. Louis and do it. But no, he wanted to make Budweiser 
in Milwaukee at, at Miller. So he comes out. They make Miller Red. We called it Miller Red because we didn't know what to call it. It's not Miller High Life. Because if you said Miller, that would be... It's just Miller. Yeah. And people would say Miller High Life? No, Miller Red. We called it Miller Red. That's not even what it's called. The the difference in this beer, uh, it had the heart of the hop. The heart of the hop. Not the whole hop. It used the heart of the hop, meaning pellets, I think. But (laughs) whatever. Whatever floats your boat. Of course, the beer brand failed. And then the next thing he did, he came out with these ads called, called Dick. Whereas this Dick was this character, and he was kind of a dick. They were considered, like Ad Age called them the worst CPG ads of the, you know, of the decade or something. Really? If you go and look at them now on YouTube, you're going to say, these ads are pretty cool. They just, they were before their time. Oh, yeah. They're, they're actually are pretty funny now, and because they're real retro 70s. Back in the 90s or 2000s, that wasn't a great thing. So, anyway, <laughs> that was probably the biggest blunder was that was that Miller red and then and then you know following up with the Dick ads and a year and a half or two years into his tenure Miller Lite peaked and it's never recovered. So we blame him for killing the brand. Yeah, and there's still people that believe it. Who knows? Now, what do you go after? Uh, I, th- I think he retired. He, I think he would like to work for the Packers or something like in an advisory role, like on a board. But you know, that's where all. all Old Milwaukee beer guys, they go work for the Packers. He got his stipend from AB and <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, we didn't need to work. <laughs> All right, so you asked about that biggest blunder. I got to tell you the funniest story. Is that it? Doesn't even involve me. The funniest story I've reported on. Pretty soon after AB sold, August the fourth. You know, August Bush the fourth party boy. We were friends, friendly. He. Somehow ends up with his girlfriend and like seven dogs in his helicopter. And he flew uh, from his house to an Outback Steakhouse. And he landed in, <laughs> in the parking lot. He and his girlfriend go in and have, you know, a couple pictures of, of Bud. And he comes out and somebody called the cops, right? So the cops come. When they say, there's a <laughs> helicopter here. There's a helicopter. And it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't like a little helicopter. Yeah. It was a Bell jet helicopter, like longer than this house. Okay, and he comes, and, and I'm reporting, and, and, and he had, clearly he had been taking something and mm. and been drinking beer. They wouldn't let him fly. He starts doing jumping jacks. They don't know why he's going acting crazy. He was flying it. Yeah, he's a pilot. Oh. Yeah, yeah, he flies his own ship. So then. They find five handguns and seven dogs. Five handguns. Five handguns, an assault rifle, and seven dogs. Seven in the helicopter. So I had to call. Yeah. And that's the last that's the last time I spoke to him. Really? But I, I was just like, why the seven dogs? I gotta know why the seven dogs. And he didn't he was like, I don't I don't know. I don't know. It's a bad time. It's a bad time. It's a bad time. It's a bad time. What other industry do you have executives that fly helicopters, drive with seven dogs in it, and just land in a parking lot and go in and have dinner? And don't go to jail for the rest of their life. And and think that that's normal. I mean, right. (laughs) You're the asshole for talking about it. Right. I'm the asshole (laughs) for thinking it's weird. (laughs) Why why is seven dogs wrong? What are you trying to say? but why not five dogs? Do you know what happened if I only had four handguns on that thing? Like, yeah, right. What do you say? What do you do? Yeah. Good that's times. that's a fantastic lead-in for one of my favorite questions to ask. Um, <laughs> clearly, know the answer for him, but how has working in this industry <laughs> affected your relationship to alcohol? And the reason I ask is that I, 
obviously, you know, we I probably all go through this, but I had an issue where there was even a time when I would go with my distributor and every time we'd sell a keg, we'd do a shot of tequila and like just, you know, one yeah. big fucking party. And, and obviously that is unsustainable in many ways, but yeah. I did a good job of sustaining it as long as I could. But and you're not drinking beer now. I don't know if that is part of it. What, what, uh, how has it affected your relationship? Yeah. I mean, I think of my first day on the job at Houston Distributing, uh, they're like, go with Harvey. And Harvey was an old uh, on-premise guy, right? One of those good time guys mm-hmm. back in the 90s. They don't have him as much anymore. But well, The on-premise guys are always kind of like that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, 70 years old. They're not going to fire him. And, you know, it's like 7 in the morning. We start hitting the bars around Houston that for the Roughnecks. That, and, you know, beer, bar, and, you know, ship days. By the time I got home, <laughs> that was my first day at work. I was like, wow, this is a going to be a an issue. So, it's going to be a long run. Yeah. And, you know, seriously, this industry does attract impulsive people. It attracts people that probably succumb to substance abuse more easily. And, I mean, it definitely, it's definitely like, you got to be careful. Like, Mm -hmm. you just, you just got to. It's, I've fallen into it many times. I'm known as a very heavy drinker. I don't drink at all much anymore, but it's just, uh, I've seen it. The divorce rates in this industry are so high. This is hard. You got to watch it. Yeah. So my my relationship's been great. I fucking love it. I mean, I have been. <laughs> uh, nobody loves alcohol more than I do. Uh, I've had so many good times on it, but uh, yeah, there's been some regrets that I wish I could go back and take back. You know, they there used to be a game in the industry back when this was more socially acceptable, but people would guess whether I had written Beer Business Daily drunk or not. This is back when I was the only writer, <laughs> just based on reading it. And, the, and a lot of times I'd get, a, you know, I get emails from people like, did you hit the sauce last night? And I'd be like, actually, no, that's just me normal. But, but most of the time they were right. You were a little more angry than normal. Yeah, they, they, most of the time they were right. So, what is the worst beer you've ever tasted? I have to assume you've had more than I have for the most part. So, <laughs> Oh, my God. There's so many. It's so hard to choose from. I really don't know. I I can't say. I I can't even name one. But I remember this is going to hurt Sam's feelings. But if he hears it, a Calajani came out with some beer. This is a long time ago. It had like wood from the and you know from South America in it or something. You know, I was, I was like, God, it tastes like a goat took a shit in this. And he looked at me. He's like, That's the rudest thing you've ever said. <laughs> and it just came out of my mouth before I could uh, say anything. But. Uh, that's honesty, uh, right? Yeah. I've had some shitty beers, but, you know, for the most part, they've been pretty good. A lot of dyes and all out there. A lot of, at the time, that's just the the tap. Did you have a favorite beer? Like one that you always like to drink or is it kind of? No, I I really, I love all beer. I, 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 that's one thing I do miss is is drinking beer. And I mean, I still drink a beer on occasion, but it's, uh, I just love beer. I really do. I've been off beer for even long, a long time just because the gout. Mm-hmm. I just, if I have more than three or four, it's just like, fuck, I can't get out of bed. Yeah, you feel it. It's not worth uh, it at that point. Not worth it. I know. Anyway, I have I have another hour of medical conditions I can talk about if you're... <laughs> that's, if you're a, that's a different if, podcast. If your guests are ready. <laughs> now that everybody's tuned out, well... Yeah. <laughs> sorry about that. Well, on that note, I think we'll wrap it up. I I do have a final parting question. And uh, who do you think, in your opinion, irrespective of what I think, who do you think is more of an asshole? You or I? Oh, definitely you. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm a pretty, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty big asshole. I don't know. I think I've softened up a little bit in my old age, but I think I still got you on longevity. In other words, I've been an asshole for longer than you have. So I think I'm going to have to grant you that one. Just, yeah. uh, although I wasn't exactly a sweet 12 year old either, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> you got a couple of years on me. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. I want to thank you for making the drive up here and hanging out with us. Yeah, um, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Like I said in the break, I think that what you have shared is something that I have it just it's a perspective that I haven't been able to share with the show and I think our audience is gonna be really, really excited to hear it and it'll continue to tell the story in a cool way. So guys go check out beernet.com and also uh harryspod.com. I also have a little podcast. We're changing the name, that's just a placeholder. I think we might call it Beernet Radio. I don't know. Yeah. I have enjoyed the podcast quite a bit for the same reason that it's people on there that I don't usually associate with. And so, uh, you're able to talk to people that have a different opinion. So, great job with the show and uh, keep it up. Hey, guys. I want to thank you for sticking around. I appreciate you spending time with my guests tonight today. Uh, A couple of housekeeping things. I want to remind you that my book is available on Amazon, both on Kindle uh, and in uh, paperback. And you'll see probably about another month, there'll be an audiobook. So if you don't like to read and for some reason you're burdened with loving to listen to my voice, you will get more of that um, in that audiobook. Um, but again, thanks for sticking around and I look forward to the next podcast. Uh, peace out. See you soon. Free play. Media. Media.